Good morning. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We will continue this morning our slow study through Paul's wonderfully rich and theological letter to the small church of God in a city called Corinth. This church was in a cosmopolitan Greek city, and the young church had gotten off the rails a little bit. They were bickering. They were fighting over the leadership. They were fighting over their preferences. They had taken the world's standards, the world's understanding of what is good, the world's calculus of what is important, and they had put that in their minds rather than God's Word. They wanted more rhetorical flair from their speakers. They wanted more impressive eloquence. They wanted more impressive leaders. They wanted what the world wanted. And in short, they had wanted the very things that God Himself had chosen not to value when He chose to save them. God had chosen them, not because they were wonderful, not because they were impressive, but because of their poverty. Indeed, their own poverty demonstrated the riches of God's mercy. Their own inability demonstrated God's power to save. And Paul has been, in chapter 3, specifically addressing the divisions within the church by reminding them of what the church is and what church leaders are and who God is. The church leaders are mere farmers, Paul says. They are faithfully planting, they are faithfully watering, but only God can give the growth. Or to use another analogy, he says that the leaders are builders, but they are certainly not the foundation upon which the structure is built. And then as we see in our text today, the church of God is the new temple of God. Paul moves from a general architectural analogy, that is, one of the church as a building that's founded upon Jesus Christ, to a very specific analogy, that the church is the temple of God. And if that is true, if the church really is the temple of God, then that should be significant for us in how we think and how we live our lives. That should change how we relate to one another and how we think about our work and what the church is supposed to be doing in the world. And so let's begin by reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our text is verses 16 and 17, but I'll begin reading in verse 10 for some context. Hear the word of our Lord. According to the grace given to me, like a master, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one takes care upon how he builds it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us. Let's pray and begin our time. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your word to us. To reveal to us who we are and who you are and how we are to live and worship you and live with each other. We pray that you would build up your church, that you would build up your temple through the proclamation of your word, that faith indeed would be strengthened this morning. Indeed, we pray to use the previous analogy that you would even sprout seeds that have been planted, that you would bring about faith and add another living stone into your temple project. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I will frame our study this morning with three points. An encouragement, a warning, and an encouragement. An encouragement, a warning, and a closing encouragement. First, let's look at the initial encouragement from the text, which is this. You, church, are God's temple. You are God's temple. That's what Paul says very clearly in both of the verses that we just read. In fact, he asserts it as in the form of a rhetorical question. Do you not know that you are God's temple? He's assuming that this is something that the Corinthians should already know from the very nature of things. It assumes they should already know it, and they either don't know it, or they're acting in an inconsistent manner with that truth. And it's worth us noting that the yous in this text are plural. He's talking to them collectively as a church, not individually. He'll later in chapter 6 use it in an individual way to talk about purity. But here he's talking about the church collectively as the temple of God. We could translate it with a little bit of southern artistic license. Don't y'all know that y'all are the people, the church of God, the temple of God? But in order for us to really understand what he's saying, it's wise for us to, as it were, look backwards so that we can unpack some of what he's saying looking at the Old Testament. This language of temple of God is full of imagery, full of meaning, most of which is clearly imaged in the Old Testament. And so in order for us to understand the weight and with clarity what he's saying, let's take a few minutes to unpack this temple language. And so for those that are new to Christianity or otherwise unfamiliar with the Old Testament, God had so previously ordered that his people would engage with him, his people would commune with him, would worship him through a very special and a very particular relationship, a covenant, an agreement. And so while the people of God were wandering in the desert for decades, God would meet with his people in a tabernacle which was a very ornate tent. And later, when God's people had been brought by God himself into the land that God had promised to them, the land of Canaan, this tabernacle was eventually replaced with a permanent structure. It's often called Solomon's Temple. It was built under the reign of Solomon about a thousand years before Christ. And this first temple was glorious. But it was later destroyed by Babylonian invaders in 586 B.C. Now, a second temple was later built by Jews returning from exile in Babylon. And that lasted about 500 years, and then it was razed to the ground by the Romans in 70 A.D. But in order for us to grasp the theological significance of what 
Paul is saying by calling the church the temple of God. I want us to note four things about the temple. Four things about God's temple in the Old Testament that are significant for the church today to consider. First, the temple was God's place of special revealed presence. The temple was the place where God would specially and uniquely reveal His presence. God had previously led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the desert. And He led them by manifesting His presence in a special way. He made a giant cloud that they would walk behind during the day and they could follow Him. And that cloud represented God's presence leading the people. And later, after Solomon dedicates this newly constructed temple, the cloud language is used again. 1 Kings 8 tells us that the priest of God placed the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest part of the temple. And then they came out of the holy place, and the text says, quote, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not even stand and minister because of the, crowd, the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. God fills His temple with His special presence. He's not limited to the temple. Scripture tells us that God is a spirit, that He's everywhere. There's nowhere that you can go and be away from God. And yet He promises to reveal His presence in a special way in the temple. And that's significant for reasons that we'll soon get to. The temple is the place of God's special revealed presence. Second, not only was this the place of God's presence, the temple was a place of holiness and purity. The temple was to be a place of holiness and purity. You can't help but read the large portions of Leviticus, which is the book in the Old Testament that details the sacrificial system, without seeing the hundreds of rituals and washings and sacrifices and protocols each of which screams to us, this place is holy. This place is pure. Only certain people were allowed in the temple. And only were they allowed in if they were ceremonially clean and they were washed for purification. And only if they were dressed in particular clothing. And only if they had eaten certain things and avoided certain things. And only if they had engaged in the right activities and avoided the wrong activities. And the list goes on and on and on. And we won't go into detail about every part of holiness and purity that was required to maintain, but the overwhelming point that Leviticus just screams to us is God's temple is to be a holy place. It's similar to when God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. What does he say? He says, take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. Well, it wasn't because that was a particularly holy place. It certainly wasn't because Mo Moses made the place holy. In fact, it was made holy in spite of Moses' presence. It was holy because God was there. He's the Holy One, and everything in His presence must likewise be pure and holy. That's why the temple was to be a holy and pure place, because it was the place of God's special dwelling. The temple was to be a place of holiness and purity. Third, not only was it a place of God's presence and a place of holiness and purity, the temple was also a place of divine making and divine ordering. It was a place of divine making and divine ordering. I say it was a place of divine making 
Because the Old Testament narrative makes it abundantly evident over and over and over again that the Israelites were unable, they were incapable of doing anything on their own. Anything good, that is. They were inept when it came to maintaining their own sovereignty. And so God takes them out and makes them a nation. He adopts them according to his own good pleasure. He rescues them from Egypt. He feeds them in the desert. He defends them from attack. He brings them into a land that they were unwilling to enter and to take. And he runs off the enemy armies. He sets up a kingly line. He provides the material resources needed for Solomon to construct this temple. And you cannot honestly read the Old Testament and give any credit for the temple's construction or existence to anyone other than God. But he didn't just make the temple, he ordered how it was to be run. And this is clear from the very rigorous and sometimes tedious instructions that he gives for the worship in the temple. I mentioned this before, but how he regulated the sacrifices and the washing and the priestly rolls and the furniture and the wood, the gold, the dishes, the fabrics, everything in the temple was divinely ordered. And that's significant. God's word detailed how Israel was to order their worship. Not the priests, not Moses, not pure prudence and wisdom, what seemed to work, not what was appealing to the Canaanites around them. It was God's temple. He built it and he ordered how it was to be run according to his word. Fourth, the temple is God's place of special presence It was holy, it was pure, it was divinely made and divinely ordered. And lastly, the temple was only entered by priestly work. The temple was only to be entered by priestly work. You see, there were large and significant portions of the temple that were off limits to many people. There were courtyards only open to certain people. There were portions only open to men. There were portions only open to priests. And the holiest portion was only accessible by one priest one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And all of this access was regulated and made possible by the work of a priest. If you had sinned or otherwise made yourself impure, you were cut off from the temple. You weren't allowed in. You were out. And the only way to regain access to the temple and to have fellowship with God's people and with worship God in his place of special residence was to have a priest offer a sacrifice in your place. He was your mediator. That is, he was the go-between between you and God. And his work was necessary for you to be made clean and therefore fit to even enter into the courts of God's presence. God's temple was a place only entered by the priestly work of another. And so we've seen this was a place of God's presence. It was holy and pure. It was divinely made and ordered. And it's only entered by priestly work. So heading back to 1 Corinthians 3, we can begin to see some of the significance of what Paul is saying when he says that the church in Corinth was the temple of God. And I hope that it will be encouraging for all of us to connect each one of these aspects of the temple explicitly to the church of God in the new covenant. First, just as the temple was the place that God specially revealed his presence, so too is the gathered assembly of saints, the church of God in the new covenant, the place of God's special revealed presence. 
The gathered church is the place that God has promised to reveal His presence in a special way. God promises in the New Testament to attend the faithful proclamation of the gospel and for His Holy Spirit to so work that the proclamation of that gospel will not return void. God promises to hear our prayers. More than that, He promises to even work within our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to help us pray when we don't even know what to pray. God attends the gathering of believers and He reveals Himself in a special spiritual way when we partake of the Lord's Supper together by faith. Just as God filled the temple in the Old Testament with a cloud, so too does He fill His gathered church with His Spirit. Second, just like the temple was a place of holiness and purity, so too is the church a place of holiness and purity. And this is true in a present tense and in a future tense. The church of God was declared holy and pure when it was founded upon the work of Jesus Christ in her place. Christ's work of atonement on Calvary was the great instrument of the church's purification. She has been made clean. And she has been made clean because her guilt has been transferred to another. And another's righteousness has been counted towards her. But not only has she been declared holy and pure like the temple, she is also called to be holy and and pure. And you see this all over, but you see it, for example, in 1 Peter 2, where the church is called living stones. That is temple language. We are living stones founded upon Jesus Christ, being built into a spiritual house in order that we might be offering spiritual sacrifices. We're called the new stones of the new temple of God, and we're not merely any old building. We're the building which is a temple of God's special presence. And thus we ought to strive for holiness and purity befitting the place where God has deigned to manifest Himself. We are holy and we are to be holy. More on that later. Third, just like the temple was divinely originated and divinely ordered, so too does the church have its origin in God and so too ought the church to be ordered according to God. The church was founded by God, like we discussed at length last week. It wasn't started by wonderfully faithful and spiritual men who happened to be dutifully seeking some nebulous spiritual force and discovered God. God came down and crashed into their life and raised them from the dead and made them to be fit apostles and to make them into the foundation of the church, Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that foundation. That apostolic foundation was only made because God had called and made those apostles into suitable workers. On their own, they were nothing. But in God's hands, they became the foundation of His glorious church, His special temple, a temple of His own making. But even more than that, just like the temple was ordered according to God's plan alone, so too ought the church to be ordered according to God's revealed word alone. You see, it is His temple, and it ought to be run according to His design, according to His wishes, and not according to anyone else's. We don't have the liberty to be all creative and to test out new ideas and to ignore clear commands in Scripture. We have been given the blueprints in His Word, and we are to build according to that perfect plan and not according to any other. No other foundation, no other methods, no other plans. God's plan and God's alone. Fourth, 
And finally, just like the temple was a holy place to be entered by the work of a priest, so too is the church a temple, a new temple of God that can only be entered by the work of a priest. You can only enter into the church by the work of a priest. You see, you and I are born into this world with a problem. We are polluted by sin. We are impure. We're corrupted. We're bent away from seeking God and doing all things for His glory. We want to do things our way. We want to demand our preferences. That's exactly what was happening in Corinth. And it was splitting the church. And we do this all the time. Not just in church. We want our way and we don't care what other people want. And we sometimes sin even more to get what we want. We demand. We manipulate. We even threaten We whine, we grumble. Whatever the fruit is, the root is, we are naturally impure. We are defiled. We're unholy and sinful. But the gospel of the New Testament is that God has made a new temple, the church. And this new temple has a new priest. He's not like the old priest, the priest who constantly had to make more and more animal sacrifices. This new priest has made a sacrifice. A final sacrifice. And he's done it once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated again and again. And this sacrifice is sufficient to atone for every single one of the sins of his people. And any and all that would come to him by faith can be atoned by this glorious sacrifice. This offer is from Christ himself. And it stands for everyone who is here this morning. If you come to Christ and believe that he is the son of God. And that he was sent for the salvation of sinners. And you turn away from your sins. And you trust in him. You too can be made pure by this priestly work. You can have access to the special presence of God by his Holy Spirit. You can be made holy and pure and given the Holy Spirit himself. Who helps you to grow in purity and holiness. You can be washed of your sin and your guilt and made clean. You can have a pure conscience and be given access to God because of the work of our Great high priest, our perfect mediator, who didn't come to sacrifice a bull or a goat in your place. He gave himself as the perfect sacrifice of atonement to enter into the new temple of God. Come to Christ this morning and believe, and you too can be made a living stone in his temple. And if you're already a stone in this new temple of God, then be encouraged in your role. Know that you are made pure by the priestly work of Christ and that by His work you have forever given access to the Holy of Holies, to the, to the divine presence because of the mediatorial work of Him in your place. And praise be to God that our sin doesn't forever banish us from God, but that He has, been, he has made a way for us to be brought back to Him. That's the new temple of God and the good news of the gospel for it. Next, Moving on to the second point, we've seen a first encouragement based upon the fact that the church is God's temple. Now let's see a warning, a warning from our text. And the warning stems from this. You are God's temple. You are God's temple. Paul affirms this again at the beginning of verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. This is a warning for us for three reasons. First, because of who owns the temple. 
Who owns the temple? Who owns the property? Who is the proprietor? It's not like the Corinthians were messing around with the temple of some other impotent god. It's not like it's Zeus's temple or Ares's temple. They are tampering with the property of the God who had laid the foundations of the entire cosmos. He set the stars in the sky and put the sun in its orbit. It's his temple, his work, his structure, his place of special presence. The place where he deigns to dwell. The place where he is to be worshipped. Where he is to be praised. Where he is to be proclaimed. Consider the audacity of a created being trying to destroy the church upon which God has set his special affections. This is God's adopted children. This is his place of special residence. It's no wonder that Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, described the church of God as an anvil upon which many a hammer has been worn out. God owns it. God will defend it. God will rescue it. God will preserve it. God will glorify his church on the final day. Therefore, we don't dare threaten the unity and the purity of God's temple by introducing sins like divisiveness or division or any other impurity. That's what's implied from the the implied conclusion of Paul's arguments. This is God's temple and be warned that he owns it and he will defend it. Which leads to a second part of this warning. That's the consequences of mistreating the temple. The consequences of mistreating the temple. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Those are sobering words. God is the owner and because he is holy, he will not permit sin to defile his sacred place. Think back to the Old Testament of Nadab and Abihu. They were killed for defiling God's place with improper worship. Think in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Skip ahead to 1 Corinthians 11. What happens when they were worshiping God inappropriately at the Lord's table? God judges. He will judge those that choose to defile His new temple. That judgment may not take place instantaneously like it did for Nadab and Abihu. But the judgment will come nonetheless. It may take place as public exposure of the sin and lead to the humiliation of the offender. It may take place as church discipline or excommunication. Or the defilement may not be exposed until the last day like Paul had just mentioned in the previous verses. Either way, God will reveal it. And he will not tolerate the defilement and the disruption of his church by sin and impurity. Especially the sin of division and divisiveness, which was so dominating the church in Corinth. We would all be wise to consider our own behavior, especially as it relates to God's temple. Have I been faithful in this area? Am I a promoter of unity? Or am I someone who tears down the living stones of God's temple? Am I an encourager that builds up these stones? Or am I a gossip or a grumbler who tears down the temple of God? Be warned that God will not be mocked and His temple building will not be thwarted. If you're engaging in these behaviors, then turn today and run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Don't be found engaging in these sins when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Don't be running headlong towards your destruction. Turn today and be forgiven. And renew your commitment to trust in Christ and faithfully engage in the building project. 
the building up of the new temple of God. Finally, I want to close with a, another encouragement. We should also see in Paul's closing words an encouragement because of the status of the temple. The status of the temple. Verse 17 again, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. God's temple is holy, he says. And he affirms again that the people of God are that temple. The nature of the temple is such that unholiness is inappropriate. It doesn't fit. In fact, it's not merely out of place. It's inconsistent with the very nature of the structure. If God is in you, if you are in His temple, then He is holy and you are to be holy as well. Unholiness doesn't belong. Division in the church of God is incompatible. It doesn't compute because God Himself is not divided. Disunity is not right because God is not disunited. And impurity is out of place because God Himself is the fountain of all purity. And if you're in Christ, know that you have been made pure. You have been made holy by the sacrifice of Christ in your place. And if you have not been made pure by faith in Christ, then today is the day that you can be saved. Come to Him this day and believe in the Christ presented in Scripture and proclaim to you this morning. You have no other foundation upon which your life can be built and your salvation can stand. Come and trust and you too can be saved. Brothers and sisters, I'll close with an encouragement by reflecting upon the language of temple which is brought up again in the New Testament. At the end of Revelation 21, the temple language is used again. John is describing a vision of the heavenly temple of the new Jerusalem, which is called the dwelling place of God with man. That's temple language again. In verse 22, John says, But I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You see, in the final state, in heaven, there will be no more temple. There will be no more place that we go to to meet with God and to worship Him. God Himself will be our temple and we will be forever united with Him. No more division, no more pain, no more sin, no more bickering and fighting, only pure enjoyment of God Himself, our Savior and our Redeemer forever. Amen. This morning we get to conclude by celebrating both our Savior and our unity by taking together the Lord's Supper. This great picture of our salvation which is the body broken and the blood shed for the founding of God's new temple. This is available to any and all who believe. If you're like the people of God described in Acts 2, that is, you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, now found in God's Word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, then we invite you to eat with us at the table. But if this does not describe you, then let the plates pass. Come first to Christ by faith and be made part of His heavenly temple. And then you may join us at Christ's table. As is our habit at Morning View, we occasionally read 